What a year. I feel like I've been writing a lot about easing up slowly on all of our anti-lockdown and protection protocols because we didn't want folks, well, to be in danger, first of all, but even so to have anxiety or trauma responses to a fast change. So when the choir came in on Thursday for their rehearsal, and again today after checking their vaccination cards, we let them choose green, yellow, or red stickers. Green to say I'm okay hugging, red to say I still want some social distance for reasons they didn't have to disclose or explain, and yellow saying I'm kind of in between. And yet the health department told us this week through their liaison to the COVID command center, which is part of the Department of Emergency Management in the city, that we could take our masks off if vaccinated, when speaking, not worry, or singing, not worry about social distance. And our members who are in the public health and epidemiology fields agreed. The science says we can begin to relax if we're vaccinated, and I literally could not take it in. I, who pride myself being logical and grounded in science, still want us to wear a mask for another week. I've required it at least that long to keep three feet apart. I, who looked at everyone's vaccination cards personally, need to ease into this. I am a yellow sticker person. <laughs> this year, this 15 months has changed us in so many ways, and we're just beginning to discover. I was thinking about how facile we have all become, the majority of us anyhow, about hopping on a Zoom call and how resistant some of us were, I won't name names, in the beginning. I remember how some of you swore that you were not going to use Zoom, and then two weeks of being separated from one another bled into three, and then you missed your friends and your small group, and you wanted to get to John's lecture on transcendentalism or Elena's meditation or Amy's yoga, or you were chair or on some committee or group, and you knew that you had to do something to be able to do your part. I remember Joe and others on staff walking people patiently through trainings and those moments when all of us at some point were helping someone else who knew a little bit less than we did and then learning new tricks together, how to raise our hands virtually. You can still get tutorials on that if you don't know how to do that or go to breakout rooms and coffee hour and all the ridiculous virtual backgrounds and beautiful ones that showed up. And all this started with, do you remember all this started with, Mildred, your camera is off. <laughs> okay, you see that button on the bottom left? It looks like a rectangle with a triangle. Can you get over and click on that? Great, oh, Mildred, now we can only see your chin. So can you move the camera up? I mean, really, there's no Mildred in the congregation, but you know what I mean. And all of us laughing all the time, right? It had been us the week before, or we did something the week after. How many of us went on talking at long lengths only to find out we were muted? Part of the unofficial curriculum of pandemic has been undoubtedly Zoom, and most of us, a lot of us, have at least reached basic proficiency. What we did for love and for connection 
The week after the stay-at-home order was declared in March of 2019, there was a workshop that we were actually supposed to host here with the Oakland Church, part two of Dismantling White Supremacy. The year before, at the Oakland Church, 25 or so of us had gathered for part one. It was led then by the Reverend Jennifer Kwan, and the workshop was about helping us all begin to see in deeper and deeper ways our culture, the water we swim in, the air we breathe, and see the ways in which it reflects and perpetuates a culture, particularly the parts that quietly or less subtly perpetuate the reality of white folks coming up on top or given every chance to do so. And the workshop was about beginning to see why or how we as a religious community might be able to do undo, to unravel, to dismantle pieces of that culture when it showed up in us and our life together and beyond. And the beauty of seeing something, as we all know, is that once you see it, you can't unsee it. So you're cured of sleepwalking through complicity in at least some part of the way the world is. And for many of us who were there, it made us want to see and know more. As part of the preparation for that day, we were asked to read an article and discuss it, an article by Tema Akun. Is that how you say her name? a scholar and a trainer and a writer who has focused on anti-racism and anti-oppression work. And the article we were asked to read is called, quite simply, White Supremacy Culture, and it's still kind of a foundational piece in the landscape of anti-racism work. And in it, Dr. Akun pulls together work from a whole bunch of different thinkers and writers and scholars and activists to try and articulate cultural norms and practices that permit our culture to persist in ways that consistently, persistently diminish, disadvantage, disenfranchise our biracial, indigenous, and people of color, our BIPOC friends and neighbors and loved ones. The list included things like defensiveness or either-or thinking, quantity over quality, only one right way, paternalism, power hoarding, fear of open conflict, individualism, objectivity, right to comfort. Some of those characteristics, even if you haven't read the article, you can think immediately how they might be part of an insidious culture, right? For some, it's immediately obvious how they might allow an entrenched system to remain entrenched and unchallenged. For instance, fear of open conflict. Well, that makes transparent debates about hard and charged but important subjects harder, right? And as such, the move to any resolution harder. Maybe it only happens or supposed to happen under those rules very slowly in back rooms where accountability is less pressing and right to comfort. Well, we can imagine whose comfort might be privileged in that right, and who therefore gets to say, as white folks often do, not now, not here, not that way, when they're 
being, when we're being challenged in ways that something is brought up, and all the barriers that puts up to how we do things based on how it makes some person feel. And of course, if what's being challenged is a place of privilege or something you've come to see as your own, well, you won't feel good about it, probably, no matter how it's brought up. So we can see how some of what the professor names made sense. So much of the article made immediate sense. It was great to see, and I couldn't unsee it. But there was one thing on that list that it didn't make sense to me intuitively. It was one that I didn't read to you when I read you the list. It was perfectionism. Perfectionism? Why that, I thought. In Imani Perry's book to her sons, Breathe, she talks about one way that perfectionism is destructive. She writes to her sons, quote, people want to truncate you. It happens to all of us as human beings, end quote. And she goes on, though, to talk about the power of the single mistake, as she calls it, how a whole life is allowed often to get written off in a racist and perfectionist society by a single mistake. How that gets amplified. Writers about class have often pointed out the same thing, how the wealthy get many mistakes and second chances and the poor and working class get just one shot. The rapper Eminem even has a hit song about it. Perfectionism at least the worst of it, sets the frame for erasing a person with a mistake. In some ways, that's what cancel culture is a version of, isn't it? Caught in ignorance or in a moment of blatant anything, bigotry, sexism, any error, and your life seems in danger of being written off as unworthy, or that's the way it can look or feel. Of course, we know actions require accountability, right? And mistakes, they challenge us to change and to grow, to make amends, sometimes to suffer the consequence, but that's different. Accountability versus losing your humanity or worth or having your life truncated. Perfectionism, Olam says, is a focus on one another's mistakes or on our own. On always seeing or naming how someone has fallen short or failed to meet an ideal standard, how mistakes or stumbles are thought to reflect on the whole person, and not just a, a part of life, part of the work. How perfectionism internalized means we fail to appreciate the good in ourselves, the good we've done, and we focus instead on the inadequacies and tending to and nurturing, actually, what she calls a harsh and constant inner critic. Do you know that voice? <laughs> Wouldn't it be lovely to cast it off or dial it down? I mean, I don't know about you, but I know that voice. 
I think I was taught it in a world of education, of sports, to name only two places. I know it showed up. Places that often were about only naming my faults as trying to make me better. It showed up in coaches pointing out the flaw in my serves after a game, but not also naming the amazing saves I had met, made or the solid team play that had shown up that night. It showed up in teachers who went over the 10 points I got wrong in the test, but never named the 90 I got right. It shows up now in my telling my daughter how she left out the dishes, but not noticing and naming that she put away her laundry and finished her final history paper on time. And it shows up in the consistent, consistent, consistent implications that how we fall short is somehow more important, more dangerous, how maybe it threatens our very ability to be loved and worthy than everything we have done right or all the effort we have put in to try and make it so. Do you know that way of life? Do you know that voice? Writer and research professor Brene Brown in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, writes, quote, where perfectionism exists, shame is always lurking. In fact, shame is the birthplace of perfectionism. It's a shield, she says, believing that if we get it right, we are lovable, we are worthy asking how we can perform rather than asking instead, how can I grow or deepen? These last 15 months, folks, we were thrust into a world of our own inadequacy. And for the most part, there was no escape. I mean, some people tried to avoid the technology, for instance, right? to avoid getting onto Zoom or figuring out how to get onto live stream. But eventually, pandemic wore most of us down. We learned all kinds of new habits, all kinds of new ways to be connected. We pushed past, in so many ways, resistance to looking and feeling stupid, that shame-filled space for so many of us that comes around when we feel inadequate to something new. And that experience, I want you to remember it as we step out of this. I want you to grab hold of it, and I want you to not let it go. I want us each to press it into our hearts, stitch it there, and push out what would say anything but that this way of living is what Brene Brown would call wholehearted and what we want from life, fully alive, growing a soul this way because Beloved community, if we has, have just learned this last year, it requires us to be ready to stumble and to feel inadequate in moments so that we can learn to be better together. 
because during this last 15 months, we have also started digging in more deeply to conversations about one of the hardest and most entrenched evils in our nation. We have started to roll up our sleeves and reach into the places where pain and inequity is hidden in plain sight and to step into this next chapter of what the work means to unravel and examine habits and structures of diminishment and hierarchy and protection of power over that perpetuate a broken system of human relations of unequal opportunity, inequity, that speaks in every way it shows up against true love of one another. And it is very confusing to try and see and remake one's relationship to our whole world, and even see ourselves differently and how we have walked through the world. We have heard stories of pain, stories of hurt that happened within our walls, which is good that we've heard them because now we can work to heal them as we have and stop repeating the habits that allowed them to perpetuate and happen. But if we think that we have to be perfect, that the conversations that we are having or find the perfect solution, or be expert before we even enter in, or protect against making mistakes, or we won't be loved, or we won't be worthy of community. We will only avoid the work, or run screaming from it, or defend against it with every fiber of our being. And that is not the way, right? We know the way. We just immersed ourselves in it. It's imperfection. It's being ready to be inadequate to the task because the task is so important, it's so vital. I just tipped over a glass of water. <laughs> My nose is running in public. <laughs> It is bumbling, right? It's, it's bumbling open-eyed and listening and learning. The way, we, the way we learned when our whole world was locked down and upended to be something new. So, so join me we maybe start to step out of this pandemic world and stepping into our imperfections. Arms wide open, not giving up learning, not giving up striving for gorgeous, powerful, excellent things in this world, but knowing that they come from the messy process of being wholly inadequate at the beginning or feeling that way at the start like the toddler who's learning to talk, or the fledgling that's learning how to fly, or the person who's learning how to really love, or the community that's learning how to be more and more a part of the liberation that is the work of our times. Or people, beloved, always beloved, figuring out how to make our way 
toward more and more beloved community. Bless us in our imperfections. Let's go. Amen.